This morning's reading comes from the Gospel of St Luke and we're going to read from chapter 16, commencing at verse 1 and reading through to verse 15. So that's Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. And this part of God's word is entitled The Parable of the Shrewd Manager. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. Morning again, everyone. It's nice to see your smiling faces again. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, again for your word, for your spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit might help us to understand this portion of your word and that he might help us in its application and do outworking in each of our lives. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is probably a two-part message. I'll start today. It'll be a message complete within itself, but then 
I might follow it up next week with uh, expanding a little bit of it. I'll wait and see how far I get this morning. <clears throat> it's an interesting parable, and it's a parable that many people struggle with, and indeed the commentators are not in agreement on how to interpret it uh, unitedly. There are various views, and I'll present some of those to you this morning. Most people struggle with verse 8. The master commanded the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And some people interpret the master there to being Jesus, the Lord, the master, commended him. And some people think it's the master in the parable itself, the master of the steward. And then there is Jesus' own very clear uh, disturbing statement or application. Um, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. What you do with your money? Oh, buy some friends. No, that's not what he means. And as you think about it and look at it, certainly in its context and the flow of it, then the meaning of it will unfold for you. Um, use your money to buy some friends. And so when it is gone, and one day it will be gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings because you bought some friends. Salvation by friendship. So there are many uh, misunderstandings associated with this parable and I hope this morning to bring some clarity to what Jesus was actually saying. And then the implication of that for us is really very challenging. So I want to do it in three parts. First, let's talk about the parable. Then I want to talk about what's the lesson of the parable. Then I want to talk about what's the application to us. And this is where I really want to get to. What does this mean for us? So let's work our way through this parable. Uh, just pointing out the obvious uh, Jesus sometimes told parables to communicate spiritual truth and sometimes he told parables that were a contrast to truth. This is one of those contrasting parables. Remember he told the story of an unjust judge because he has another point to make. He's not asking us to be like that unjust judge, stubborn and refusing the widow who approached him. Or like the wicked servant in Luke chapter 19 or like this unfaithful steward here in Luke 16. This is a very bad example with a very good lesson. This man is very wealthy. Jesus told his disciples, so it's to the disciples that he's saying this. We've just come out of Luke 15 where Jesus is in fact talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because he was welcoming sinners and eating with them and he told those three lost stories, concluding with the parable of the prodigal son, which remember how that ends, you've got the brother the elder brother who is upset and pretty cranky about the fact that dad is wasting resources wasting money killed the fatted calf on the prodigal son the son who wasted everything and so there is this contrast between how the resources are to be used for God in this parable Jesus is telling his disciples not the Pharisees but they're listening but he's focusing on us he says there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. This is a very, very, very wealthy man because he has debtors and the debtors have significant debts and he is able to carry those debts. And so he has appointed this manager, this steward, this executive assistant or whatever word you would like to use to describe it. That person's like the butler out of um, Downton Abbey. He made all the decisions. He operated everything. The rich man probably was living somewhere else far away. But it came to his attention that this executive assistant, this steward, this manager of his affairs was dealing inappropriately of 
wasting his possessions, whatever that meant. This uh, steward would have had the responsibilities to employ workers and to pay them. He would have entered into business contracts on behalf of the master, buying and selling all sorts of things in the parable. He's buying and selling oil and grain. Other parables Jesus told, they, he would also bought livestock or lands or buildings. Remember that strange story about Jesus called these people to follow him? He said, look, I've just bought five yoke of, five yoke of oxen and I can't come because I've got to go and see what they're like. And we think, what? Why would you buy five yoke of oxen and not know what they like? Well, because he didn't buy it. His manager bought it. And he, the owner, has to go and see what they're like. So this is the role, the responsibility of this man. A great deal of responsibility is placed in his hand. Um, but he has misappropriated it somehow. He's been wasting it. Instead of doing it for the benefit of the master, he's been maybe doing it. We're not giving all the details. <clears throat> so he called him in and he says to him, what is this I hear about you? And he fires him on the spot like Donald Trump. You're fired. Then he says, and this is not wise, but this is what the owner, the master does. He says, give me an account of your management because you can't be manager anymore. Settle the books up. Go and work out what all the accounts are and bring it back to me. You've got two weeks' notice. He's not fired on the spot. Take your belongings and leave. It's like tidy things up. And it's in that process, this window of opportunity, that this manager says to himself in verse 3, what am I going to do now? He's a white-collar worker. He's not a blue-collar worker. My master is taking away my job, and with the job would also go his accommodation, because like in Downton Abbey, the staff were accommodated on site. So he's losing his income. He's losing his place of residence. He's in serious trouble. And then suddenly it comes to him. My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. Anybody can dig. But he's not strong enough to dig all day. And I'm too ashamed to beg. That's the lowest of the low. I'd be too embarrassed to do it. And then he has this eureka moment in verse 4. I know what I'll do. It just suddenly comes to him what he's going to do. And it's very clever. It's very shrewd. It's very practical. I know what I'll do. So when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes and their dwelling places. He needed a place to stay. He needed the source of income, and he worked out a way that he was going to do it. So he came up with this scheme. So he calls each one of his master's debtors, each one of the debtors. There's a list of them. We're only given two examples, but there are multiple. So he has quite a resource list to rely upon. He calls them in. He says, how much do you owe my master? It sort of implies, but it would not mean, doesn't he know? Is he uh, that bad an accountant? He doesn't know how much this guy's in debt for? No, what he's doing, he's asking the debtor, how much do you owe? Bring out your bill, your invoice that I've sent you, if you like. And I want you to take your pen. I want you to sit down quickly. Don't think about this. Get it done. Right, sit down and cross that out and then halve it. For the first one, it's Harvard, isn't it? From 3,000 down to 1,500. Is he stealing from his master's resources? That's what most commentators will go with. There's another possibility, and I think a probability. The master was doing something that, which was very typical for Jewish business people, but it was against the law, certainly against God's law, that Jewish people were not to charge interest when they lent loans or whatever to other Jewish people. To Gentiles, you could charge interest, but to Jewish people, it was interest-free, no usury. 
Well, it would appear that many people got around that by simply saying if you borrowed $1,000, then you really were borrowing $1,200 because the $200 became the interest bit, which they were like doing it under the books. So what this steward is doing, he's not stealing from his master's resources, he's actually cutting off the interest payment and probably also removing his commission that he would have been entitled to. Because in the ancient world, in their business practices, there were set commissions for selling oil or selling crops or buying livestock or purchasing land. There were set commissions that the stewards would earn for themselves in the process of dealing with stuff for their master. So he's probably not robbing the master, which is why there's no accusation or threats of illegality or anything like that, but rather a commendation of shrewdness. He is simply giving up his commission and removing the potential interest that was already charged on the loan and said, cut the 3,000 litres in half and make it 1,500 because that's the real debt. Now you sit down and you write it and do so quickly and he does. Now you're an accomplice. Now you know what I've done. And he does that with each one of the debtors. And in future I'll come to your house and I will ask you to accommodate me and to provide clothes for me and to provide food for me. And if you refuse, then I'll let all the other debtors know that you're a dishonourable man. That you did this, that you're involved in this. And so it's all about shame and honour. And so it's a very shrewd operator, isn't he? He set these people up for himself. And so then verse 8, when the master finds, about, finds out about this, he commends the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. What's the owner going to do? He can't take any charges out because it was illegal to have interest. You can't blame him for giving up his commission. He hasn't robbed the master of anything. So the master commends him on being shrewd. And then it's either Jesus's comment or Luke's comment, either way, Holy Spirit inspired, a general statement for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of light. What does that mean? The people of this world, not followers of Jesus, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. I think what Jesus is saying is this. When it comes to planning and preparing for our futures, the people of this world do it much better than we do, children of light than we do in preparing not for our future in this life, but our future eternally. The people of this world plan for their future in this world much better than Christians plan for their future in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Does that make sense? And it's on the basis of that that Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it is gone, just like for the steward, you'll be welcomed into not earthly dwelling places, but into eternal dwelling places. Jesus is saying, use your worldly wealth, use your resources that God has entrusted to you in order to reach people that'll be there in eternity who will welcome you when you get there. Build relationships with people who don't know Jesus, who don't know God, so that when you're in heaven, they will thank you for not accumulating all the wealth and resources for yourself, but using it for their benefit. Make sense? What this parable does not mean is, use your money in unrighteous ways 
or acquire it in unrighteous ways, because money ultimately is neutral. It's what you do with it that either makes it good or bad. The Bible certainly says the love of money is the cause of much evil. Nor is this parable saying that you can buy your way into heaven because we know that you can only get into heaven by knowing Jesus personally. There's no other way. <clears throat> what this parable is saying is use your money, use your resources, use that which God has gifted you with to prepare for your eternal future by helping others here and now, making friends of them, reaching them, so that they can prepare for their eternal future. Use your brains and use your money to be strategic for the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. In the parable, there are many contrasts. I hope that's clear, that that's the point of what Jesus is saying. And then from verse 10 and following, there are many, many contrasts. Who can be trusted? Uh, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, general statement. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. The way we are with a little bit is the way we will be if we get a lot. Some people think, gee, if I, only had, if I could only earn more, then I would give more. And Jesus says, phooey, that's not true. What you do with a little is what you'll do with much. If you give a lot when you've got a little, then when you've got a lot, you'll give a lot. If you give a little when you've got little, then when you make more, you'll just give a little. Because your focus is on here, on yourself. And that's generally true, in, particularly in Western society. The more we make, the less we give on a percentage basis. That's a mirror statement that's worth... Re is that true for you? The godly way to do it, and certainly in the light of this teaching, this parable, is what John Wesley did, what Rick Warren does, uh, what Jonathan Edwards did, what Billy Graham did. They said, there's my income, that's what I need to live. Everything I earn above and beyond that, I give away to the kingdom. I, in various avenues and resources, and they don't change what they need. There may be some slight increase because of inflation or whatever. Rick Warren, a multi-millionaire, uh, still drives the same truck that he had before he made the millions that he made out of the books that he's written. John Wesley was the same. Billy Graham was the same. Jonathan Edwards was the same. There are a multitude of people who are just like that. We need to be wise in preparing for the future, our eternal future. We're wise when it comes to preparing for this life. The government makes it obligatory for us, doesn't it, that we put money into superannuation so that you contribute now but you benefit later. Well, Jesus is simply saying, prepare for the real future. There are many contrasts that Jesus gives in the remainder of this parable. He contrasts being faithful to him against being like that unrighteous steward. He compares the temporal with the eternal. Verse 11, he says, um, so if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth here and now in this life, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been trustworthy in handling it here, how are you going to get true riches? It's interesting. Jesus is saying in heaven we will have true riches, true riches. So while we value money and resources and wealth here, it's nothing compared to what's coming. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, for us that means God's property, he will give you property of your own. 
True ownership is not in this life. We possess things, we don't own things. We came into the world with nothing, we will go out with nothing. And what do we have now? We have because God has resourced it. He's provided it for us. We have it. We don't own it. He owns it. He's lent it to us. We possess it. We hand it back in when we die, when we leave here. But when we get to heaven, we will be rewarded based upon how we have been trustworthy or untrustworthy here with the resources that he has provided for us here. That's what he's saying. You have to make a choice, verse uh, 13, between you're going to live for this life or you're going to live for God. You're going to live for God in this life or you're going to go pursuing mammon, worldly wealth, status and position. And many of us are being deceived that our gaze is too low, that we're preparing for this life and not for the next and unfortunately, the world can look on some who name the name of Christ and can point the figure and accuse them of being lovers of mammon. The prosperity gospel will take you there. 3C churches, if you've seen that recently, will take you there. The Lord Jesus also contrasts not just true riches in heaven and you actually owning it it's yours because that's what jesus says don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where um, moth and rust can destroy it and where thieves break in and steal don't lay up treasures here lay up treasures there where there is no moth and there is no rust and thieves don't break in and steal where your treasure is there your heart will be also then you'll own it because no one can take it away from you well what will you own depends what you do with what you've got here what we do here impacts there that great theologian russell crowe in that movie gladiator said that what we do in time echoes in eternity this is the implication the teaching of this parable that is quite challenging for us Ultimately, the Lord Jesus, there is a contrast between the shrewd manager and the foolish behaviour of the people of light who don't do what he did. He saw what was coming and he prepared for it. We know what's coming. Are we preparing for it? The manager made the mistake of thinking that things he had that he possessed were his for himself and they weren't they're entrusted to him to manage for another so too for us that which we possess belongs to our master to jesus not to us personally and we are to use what he has given us to please him and glorify him as well as to minister to others so this guy is shrewd, wise, commendable because he takes the present window of opportunity he had in those last two weeks before he was kicked out to provide for his inevitable future. He made tough choices to prepare for it. And while you may not like his example, he was wise in doing so. He knew what was coming, he used what he had, and he prepared for the future. We know we can't take it with us. So my question to us this morning is this. 
and I'll put it personally, am I managing the resources that God has entrusted to me? Are you managing the resources God has entrusted to you? In light of eternity. <clears throat> I, don't think this, I don't think this passage is teaching us that we are to take all of our resources and give it away. That's no, saying we have to manage it. And the Bible certainly gives us guidelines on managing it. Here are four. Number one, we are to manage it for our own enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6. We are to manage it for our loved ones. We are to take care of our family and loved ones. We are to manage it for the good of others. We are to contribute to helping and benefiting other people around us. And we are to manage it for God's purposes and his work, his kingdom. Am I managing the resources God has given me appropriately? For my own enjoyment, is a part of that is legitimate. For my own loved ones, essential. For good of others and for God's purposes. Am I putting it all in basket one for my own enjoyment? Baskets one and two for me and my family and mine. And I'm giving pittance to the good of others or charities or helping and giving little to the cause of God's work and kingdom? Or am I giving some? Am I managing it properly? Have I got the percentages right? Bearing in mind, I'm going to be called to give an account. What did you do with the resources I gave you? There's an old hymn. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. God certainly gives some people the ability to make a lot of wealth, Deuteronomy chapter 8. But he holds all of us accountable for whatever amount we have. What did we come into the world with? Nothing. What do I have now? Is it enough? There's nothing wrong with making more. Nothing wrong with that at all. What are you going to do with it? That's the issue. When I die, how much of it will I take with me? None. But based on the amount that I have will be the accounting that I have to give. So Jesus says in verse 9, Use your money to get friends into heaven. There's another parable Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 12. It's about the rich man who had a bumper season crop one year and he didn't know what to do and he said, I've got it, Eureka. I'm going to knock down my barns, which aren't big enough to store all of these crops in abundance. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'm going to say, sit back, take life easy. You're well prepared for the future. He prepared for his future in this life. He did not prepare for his future in the next life. So God comes to him and says, you're a fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. Then who will get all that you have accumulated? The Lord Jesus says you can't take it with you, but he does certainly teach that we can send it on ahead. Lay out for ourselves treasures in heaven. And it's not how much, as I've said I think already, it's not how much you have, it's about what you do with what you've got. Now this is where... I got really excited when I was looking at this this week and I don't know if I'll get through all of it in the remainder of the time I've got, but here we go. True riches are not ours in this life. Like we like gold and jewellery and diamonds and whatever else you think is valuable. 
whether it's cars or horses or sporting goods or whatever your interests and hobbies are. We think that's really excellent. For me, books would be pretty high up the list. That's not true wealth. That's not true riches according to Jesus. He contrasts the wealth of this world with true riches in the next. And if we've been unfaithful here, then who's going to entrust to us true riches there? There's a possibility that you can miss out on something. Your place in heaven as a follower of the Lord Jesus is guaranteed. It's certain based on what he did for you. Not talking about that. But your position in heaven will depend on what you do now for him. It's not salvation by works, but it's works following salvation. And the works that follow salvation is where God will do the evaluation and determining our reward. Our reward. It's a TV show I used to watch when I was a kid, probably in my teens. I think it was called Let's Make a Deal. I think it was called that. It's where the people would come out of the audience and they would uh, engage in some activity and they either had to guess the price or they had to participate in something and, and they would win something. And they could win something very nice. But the, ideal, uh, the, the idea of the show was, let's make a deal. Okay, you've won the washing machine. Now behind this curtain over here, there is a prize, another prize. You can swap that for what's behind that. The only difference is you don't know what's behind the curtain. And some people would swap it. Did you see this show? Nobody ever saw it, all right. <laughs> some people would swap it and they'd give up their washing machine or dishwasher or whatever it was and they'd get a brand new car. You think, wow. Or sometimes they'd swap a car or a dishwasher or something really nice and valuable for a thousand toothpicks or toilet paper or tissues or whatever, something nowhere near as valuable. Let's make a deal. The difference is this. God says the same thing. Let's make a deal. And God tells us what's behind the curtain. And he's asking us, don't get deceived by the evil one. Don't get deceived by this world of investing only in this world. It's not true wealth. The real wealth is there. Invest in that. That's the priorities we have to make. Looking after myself for my own enjoyment and my family and loved ones. Doing good for the benefit of others as well as contributing to God's work and cause. Balancing all of that in my life and managing it. How do you make your money or your lives on earth count in eternity? Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven. Invest in it. Let me share with you an amazing verse that I came across. It's in Luke chapter 14. It's a very challenging chapter. It talks about inviting people to your home and giving a banquet and so on. In verses 13 and 14, uh, Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee and a whole lot of other people are coming and they're trying to figure out where they're going to sit and Jesus makes a comment about that. Then he says, verse 12, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives and your rich neighbours. If you do, they'll invite you back and so you'll be repaid. He's not saying don't do that. He says if you do that, then they'll invite you back and it's, you know, give and take and enjoy it. Well, that's good. Jesus says, here's the challenge. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, 
the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, note this, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid. Jesus seems to teach consistently that what we do here impacts what happens to us there in terms of our status, our position, the resources we will have in order to work for him. I think when we get to heaven, we will all have a craving and our craving will be, I want to serve God. What can I serve him with? With the resources that he again has provided for me and that I have earned by my faithfulness in this life. One philosopher once defined it as, uh, think of this life as like a circle, a dot. Our whole life is inside that little circle, inside the dot. And then extend a line from that and put an arrow on the end of it going into eternity. That's your eternal life. The dot, this little circle, is our earthly life. Lift your eyes to the future. That's where the true riches are. That's where the real reward and the real blessings are. This is just a testing zone where God will examine us for our faithfulness. It's pretty challenging stuff, isn't it? God is going to reward us. I might talk more about what is going to reward and what clues does he give about the rewards and what does he require of us. What is the application of this? Let me take a few minutes to talk this through. If, what, if I um, have understood this correctly, then how do I demonstrate that I love God and I want to be faithful to him and devoted to him? How do I demonstrate that now in my life? Well, number one, by me spending time alone with him. That's a given. That's one. Number two, by taking my money, my tithes, tithes particularly, and I give those to the local church. If you're a member of our church, that's here. And then your offerings, that's tithes and offerings, your offerings are the bits that you give on top of that to other missions, to other ministries, to other organisations, but the tithe comes to the local church. Examine what the scripture says about what they did with the tithe in the Old Testament, where they took it and how it was used. Second way, I demonstrate my love for God, not just by what I do with my money uh, here and in giving it away to that. I demonstrate my love for God by how I serve. The most precious commodity that we have is our time. And giving some of our time and energy and skills and talents to supporting the work of the church and to representing Jesus in that act of service inside and outside the church. That's three. Serving. We need 200 more volunteers for our carols. At least 100 of those are going to have to come from us. There's five other churches and they'll contribute workers as well, but we need at least half of that to come from us particularly on the pack-up, that's the setting up on the Sunday morning for the carols in the afternoon, and especially when the carols is finished at 8 o'clock, we've got to pack it all up because school's on the next morning. So we have to pack it up as best we can that night. And then the next morning, Monday morning, we're going back to do a, a clean-up of the school grounds because we have to leave it like we found it. We don't want to make, uh, have a bad reputation with the school, and we don't want to misrepresent or muddy the name of the Lord Jesus. So you can help in doing that, even if it's a little bit. Think about it. Go onto our website and see what is available for you to serve. Fourth way, 
time alone with him, contributing money, what I do with my money, serving. Girls Brigade needs more uh, officers. Don't know what you do on Monday night, turn up tomorrow night and check it out and see if it's an area where God would like you to be involved in ministering to the life of young ladies. There are many other avenues, I'm sure, where you can get involved. Fourth way, by connecting with one another in Christian community. We increasingly in our society are becoming individualistic. We do what we want to do because we want to do it, and if we're not interested in it, then we don't do it. Secondly, associated with that is family, and if family, if anything's happening in the family, then we drop the third one, which is our church family. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we can demonstrate our love and commitment to him and to his work in the kingdom by being here regularly, faithfully, every week, unless you're sick or unless you're on holidays. And for some of you, unless you've got to work, some of us do on Sunday. Be regular. Be regular in church attendance, be regular in a connect group or a small group. Connect with other people. Um, if your name's not in the directory, get your name into the directory and your photo so we can get to know one another and support one another and be a community together. That's certainly what Jesus wants. It's all through the New Testament, all the one another statements. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by your connectedness, your love and care for one another. And that's the fifth way, mission. Telling other people about Jesus. How do you demonstrate your love and care for him? By showing it and sharing it with others who need to hear it. The Bible says, 1 Peter 3.15, that we are to always be ready. Always be ready to give a reason, a response to somebody who asks you, why are you a Christian? What's the reason for your hope? Why are you so confident of going to heaven? Always be ready. Are you ready? Well then, help it. Use us, help, let us help you to get ready. Pray for open doors of opportunity. Go join a community group where non-Christians are gathering together. Follow your own interests. I've told you before, one of the best books on evangelism that I've ever read, and there are several, but one of them, I just love the title of it, it's Dog Training, Fly Fishing and Evangelism in the 21st Century. Dog training, anybody here like training dogs? Fly fishing? and evangelism of the 21st century. He's in this congregation this morning. He's not normally here uh, this morning, but he is this morning, so I'm going to tell this story anyway. That there was somebody in our church who came to me a thousand years ago and said he has a particular interest in a hobby, takes up his time on a Saturday, and it's with uh, model aeroplanes. And he goes, pretty regularly, faithfully, flies his model aeroplane, knocks his socks off, thoroughly enjoys it. Got anything like that in your life? really interested in and in the midst of that over the years you get to know the other guys who were there who are enthusiastic about it several months ago uh, somebody in that connection of groups I think passed away and they went to the funeral and they heard the minister say things like that if you don't believe in Jesus you're you know you won't go to heaven you'll be going to hell these guys came back to this person who's part of our church and here this morning came back and they asked him we went to the funeral during the week and we heard the minister say this and he said this, this and this. What do you think? <laughs> well, they knew he was a Christian. Just by him being there, flying aeroplanes for Jesus. Using your hobbies and your interests to build relationships with a view to talking. When the opportunity comes, always be ready. 
to give an answer for the hope that you have. And he had that opportunity. And he was, I think, thoroughly excited that God had used him in that context. God wants to use you in exactly the same context. And all of that becomes part of what he evaluates and what he wants to reward. Our God is a generous God who wants to give and he wants to give us more and he doesn't want us to miss out. That's why Jesus teaches us this. Prepare for the future. Not just in this life, but in the real life. Let's pray together. What about if we take a minute just of silence or so and you make the response that you need to make to God this morning. If there's a decision to make or a choice to make, what do you need to do? What will you do? Heavenly Father, you are a good, good Father, generous to us. You have resourced us. You've provided all that we have. You've entrusted it to our management. Give us wisdom and help us to make good choices so that on that day when we give an account, we will embrace and enjoy the rewards that you so much want to give us. Glorify Jesus through us, we pray. Amen.